Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. Now, given the COVID-19 scenario, we've moved to recording our interviews via Skype or Zoom, but hopefully you won't notice much difference in the quality. And my guest today is Carlo Gabler, a novelist, biographer, playwright, television director and teacher. The eldest son of writer-parents Ernest Gabler and Edna O'Brien. His publications include novels, short stories, plays, screenplays, children's books, historical works and memoirs. His latest book is called Tales We Tell Ourselves, a book inspired by the Decameron, a collection of 100 stories put together by the Italian writer Giovanni Boccaccio during the Black Death in the 14th century. He's also just finished a new novel which will be out next year. Carlo, I suppose the first thing that really struck me about you is that you have such a wide variety of a writing portfolio. I mean, did you set out to engage in such diversity of work or did it just happen? Oh, no. I mean, it was entirely driven by pecuniary concerns. Um, The... The way that literature and publishing has changed means that specialisation no longer is possible. In the 1930s, you could be L.P. Hartley. I don't know if you... L.P. Hartley wrote The Mm Go-Between. That's his most famous uh, book that was made into a film, the screenplay by Harold Pinter starring starring Julie Christie. So um, he was one of the reviewers, I think, for The Express. The other reviewer was Olivia Manning. They took it in turns, a week on, a week off. They did about six books in the review, be about 2,000 words. So they wrote two 2,000-word reviews a month, 24 a year. And with that money, L.P. Hartley could afford a house in Bath and go to Venice for two months and rent part of the Palazzo every year and write his novels because there was the capital available And that's what he did. That's over. According to Mark Namus, it ended with the OPEC oil hike. Mm. That's when you that's when you couldn't get it. After the OPEC oil hike, real estate went through the roof. The price of tea went through the roof. It stopped. And there are other changes as well. The rise of the agent, um, the strange way in which publishing has become focused on the deal. You you pay for two books, but you get three. I mean, that's really not good uh, for the people who write the books. There are many, many different things that account for this change, which we can or which we can go into if you want or not. But the result of that is that if you wish to survive in the kingdom of letters, you need to be protean. You need to be able to do many different things. So people now do do many different things. And did you find I that no easy different. or did you struggle with it? Um, I think I think that I have a uh, certain things came my way which the doing thereof trained me and prepared me for the accommodations I've had to make so for instance for many years I worked as a um I wrote readers' reports for the Northern Ireland Film Commission. So they would send a a script 
you would read it and write a report. There was a template, you know, you summarize the story, the characters, likely audience, themes, who's going to finance it. You know, there were these categories. And I trained, I would do, I would be doing sometimes 10 scripts a week. Mm-hmm. I trained myself to read it and then write the report with absolutely no fuss or time-wasting or procrastination. I just got myself into the... Um, I, I, I became a Stakhanovite, you know, a kind of Soviet wonder worker, but in literature. I just did it. And things like that train you. So now you can say to me, could you write me 1,500 words on something? You have an hour. They won't be very good. I can do it. And in terms of the creative side then, how did you let the creativity come out in your other writing? It just all became part of the same programme. So, you know, when I started, when I was writing, I went to the film school and I left in 1979 and I started writing stories and and what eventually became a novel. Um, I can remember sitting at the kitchen table of the flat I lived in and writing and going, oh no, and having, oh no, and uh, correcting and then writing it out again or typing it again Mm -hmm. and painfully learning keep it chronological, be simple, don't foreshadow, all those sorts of things. You learn how to use language and it took many years. And um, then various things came my way, things that I was invited to do. Reviewing was another thing I got asked to to do. And and as a result of that, the the speed with which I was able to generate uh, martial and deploy language and put it down on the page increased. So it wasn't that the creativity was stifled by these practices, but it it was made more fluent. But I can tell you when I started in 1979, I was very slow and clunky and it was not easy. And it does take time for people, as you said, to sort of train themselves. But I sometimes feel, and, and authors will say this themselves, they just procrastinate too much. Do you think mm. they should just sit down and get on with it? Well, as my friend Robert McLean Wilson always says to me, you never hear a plumber saying I've got plumber's block. Mm -hmm. Very true. And you never hear a brickie saying I've got brickie's block. So if you're a writer, don't indulge yourself by saying you've got writer's block. Just bloom and do it. Get on with it. And Mm. in terms of all of the different styles of writing that you engage in, do you have a favourite? Is there one that you enjoy more than others? Oh, I think writing fiction is the greatest pleasure. Because, you know, it's a one-party state, your party secretary. Uh, the characters do have a, a tendency to be unruly and not to do what you want, which you must allow. So it's not a proper one-party state, but the pleasure of um, creating order, drawing on energies and content from your unconscious, your unruly id, is absolutely fabulous. But I... Mm, that's what I think I like doing the most because I'm usually the most surprised because when the unconscious is in flow, you actually, although it's in you and it's coming out of you, you've ceded responsibility to the unconscious and it is coming up with the characters and it is telling you what they say and you are experiencing, experiencing the book as the reader will experience the book for the first time, you yourself are surprised. That's an incredible pleasure. Then, of course, you go backwards and forwards over the text. You become familiar with it. You rework it. You criticize it. You polish, you burnish, you comb, 
etc., the luster slightly diminishes. But the first time when you're going like this and, you know, the muse is in you or the throb, as Nabokov calls it, is in you or the whatever it is, is in you. That's a marvelous feeling. But I also, you know, I love all my children equally. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a review is uh, just as valued, as far as I'm concerned, a literary artefact as a novel. But when it comes to novels, then do you plot or do you just let it come out? Um, that's a very, very good question. The, the first thing I would say is I always draw a distinction between plot and narrative. And I'm a very poor plotter. Right. You know, Ian Fleming was a very good plotter. He organized things would happen. These things would happen to James Bond and, 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 you know, he contrived things so that you got a, um, an agreed outcome at the end. I mean, James Bond has to live. He has to survive. He has to escape. He has to win. I'm interested in stories based on character and uh, event, which is more um, evolutionary. So you have somebody who is a certain way inclined and then something happens to them. And because of the way they're inclined, they do something. And that then precipitates something. And then somebody says something to them and they do something else. And that's that's narrative. And so it's 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 a question of every, content buds out of content. So everything comes out of what went before and leads on to what comes after when, when you're telling a story. So what I need to be able to do, and I am gonna I am gonna answer your question is yes, I will have a vague idea, you know. Okay, so it's gonna we're gonna start on the first of January and the character's gonna wake up and they're going to make a new year's resolution and then they're going to go into the street, etc. You know, I have some some vague idea of what the chronological happenstance or content will be but then what's really important is understanding the kind of person that they are and their backstory and their history who their parents were whether or not they like peanut butter making certain that I am across the entire range of their individuality which I will have made myself an expert in by doing things like writing out their life story, you know, in bullet point, but with dates and understanding where they were born and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I will be able to go forward. But to go back to what I was saying a moment ago, the thing about the unconscious is, you know, when you write, you drop down into this sort of, cinema stroke cellar stroke theater and there are the characters in costume delivering the lines all the props are ready they've been prepared and you sort of know and you also sort of don't know they have an autonomy they have an agency and the more of the latter the more autonomy the more agency the more they are themselves and you are not in control the better but you can only get to that by preparing Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it's, it's. It probably sounds like juju to you, <laughs> like, like, like sympathetic magic, but it is true. And then the other thing you have to have is, um, you have to have the all the kind of language thing, and use of the, you know the grammar thing, all that kind of stuff. You have to have that as second nature. Mm-hmm. So the ability to organize language in a you know clear, fluent, grammatically correct way has been inscribed it's like typing but deeper 
And that, that you have to train yourself and that takes years. I mean, I've heard John Banville, a writer I admire enormously, talking very fluently and exactingly and persuasively about how he made himself the master of language through working very, very hard. And it's a process that all writers have to go through. And he agonises over sentences for days. Yes, he's a, he's a very, very exacting um, writer. You know, he's very, very concerned with the way in which the language is, 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 is arranged on the page. And then, interesting in terms of what you were just saying, because your latest book, Tales We Tell Ourselves, somebody else has already created everything that's in there. <laughs> and now you're just coming along and sort of rearranging and retelling. So how did you mm. find that process? There's a very famous interview with Cormac McCarthy, He of the Road, um, in the New York Times. He doesn't give many interviews in which he says, uh, literature's dirty secret is that books come out of books. That's not an exact quote. But he's very, very good, Cormac McCarthy, on the way that text breeds text. So um, I have taken, uh, I mean, many of the things that I've written have come out of already existing content. So I, I, I wrote a book called The Cure, which was about Bridget Cleary, who was a woman who was thought to have been taken and a changeling left in her place. This was a huge event in um, Tipperary in 1895, and then she was murdered by her family. So the, 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 the literary humus from which that novel sprung were the, the court report, the detailed court report of the 16 people who were put on trial for her murder, 10 of which were then in the local Tipperary paper. I mean, hundreds of thousands of words of stuff. Um, the next book I wrote after that book, The Cure, How to Murder a Man, was about uh, a, a, a landlord's agent, really, who the ribbon men want to murder. The, the starting point was Realities of Irish Life by a man called Trench, who was a landlord's agent in 1850s in Ireland, just after the famine, uh, doing some um, interesting and, um, he, yeah, doing some difficult and unpleasant things as well. And I decided it would be interesting to tell the story from, because nobody had ever written about the agent. Lots of people had written about the ribbon men. And so I read his diary and it, the book came out of that. Boccaccio was a medieval writer who wrote this book called The Decameron uh, in the, during the Great Plague, uh, 1348, 1352, uh, which swept through Europe, killed possibly 60% of the population, including the woman that he was in love with and his father and other members of his family. And what he did was he came up with the idea that 10 people, seven women, three men flee Florence and go and form a bubble, as we would term it. They go into lockdown in a, in a villa, in a house outside Florence. And then to stop themselves quarreling over 10 days, they each tell a story. There's 10 of them. So 10 stories, 10 days, 100 stories to Cameron. And the, the stories that they tell are uh, stuff that Boccaccio had. They were in the ether. Some of them were fabulous. Some of them were fairy tale -y. Griselda is in the mix. I think Griselda is a terrible story, so I didn't include it. And there are also stories about 
everyday Italian life with everyday Italian settings. And there are some very, very strange stories in the mix about things that you would think people wouldn't write about in 1350, in, in this period. So for instance, there's a story about two men who are both philanderers and what and they promise each other whoever dies first will come back and tell the other one you know what's it what it's like on the <laughs> other side and the guy who comes back comes and tells his friend you know this business about like you, you shouldn't sleep with people do you know where where i'm at they don't care they're not bothered mm-hmm. it really doesn't really doesn't register with them and boccaccio took holy orders he was a religious man he clear he, there, there's textual proof that he thought that possibly the plague was punishment because human beings god had arranged the plague to punish human beings for being bad he sort of thinks that but he's absolutely clear religious belief is a means of social control and he writes a story when a person comes back from hell purgatory and says do you know what it's nonsense don't believe it the parallels, though, between what did happen 700 years ago and what we're going through now with COVID was really, it's quite unbelievable, really, because, again, you're talking about being in a bubble and people were cocooning. Uh, they were fearful of the epidemic. Like, it's absolutely really coincidental. Mm. It's also a, um, yeah, it's also a book which is, well, there, there are two things to say about it. It's a book which is about, it's been designed, it's been created. So you have the the 10 people in their villa and you have lots of talk between them, the framing, which I've eliminated. And then you have the the stories that they tell. So the original book is like 800 pages long. Well, you know, it's too big. You read it all, I assume. I, I edited, yes. So I just took 27 stories and a half story that's in an aside to make 28. And I chose 28 stories because two and eight add up to 10. Mm-hmm. It had to be, there had to be some sort of numerical uh, system. Right. And um, the belief of Boccaccio was that pandemics numb the psyche and fiction reanimates it. And he organizes his stories to do this. And I've tried to replicate because I've maintained the, the sequencing. My, my, the stories that I've retold are in the order in which they appear in the mm-hmm. original. And I've tr- so I've tried to, you know, I've tried to honour that. And they start light and then they get darker and darker and darker. And some of them are truly terrible. And then at the very end where he lands, the stories are about people trying to behave better. And what reaction have you got to the book? Um, I think, what reaction have I got to the book? Well, one, one person, one review, which I was delighted, took the book as a sort of, took this book as a, they, the, the, the reviewer said, you know, the Decameron, jeepers, you know, it's like one of the, like you should read, you should read the Decameron, the Bible, Ovid, hmm. all of Shakespeare, Chaucer, Saga of Gilgamesh, you know, just like these are the these are the things that literature rests on. But, you know, it's a monster. It's 800 pages. It's interminable. So what this does is it's a bridgehead. 
you don't have the time to read 800 pages so this will this will this will get this will shoehorn you in you'll get enough and you'll be able to talk about the decameron at, at dinner parties like the cliff notes isn't that it exactly yes, it's like the, so the reviewer didn't say that but that is one of the things that i would like people to do look at this and think ooh, and if they're so inclined they can then go to the original and you've done other retellings, as you've said, in the past. And, and one, obviously, was uh, Aesop's Fables as well, was yeah, another. Yeah. So, I mean, what did you learn, I suppose, previously from those retelling of stories that you could bring and lend to this one? Because you, you this book came out quite quickly, actually, didn't it? You turned it around quite quickly. I started it on May the 17th and deliver it, delivered it on June the 29th, the I mean, first draft. That's this pretty year. phenomenal. Yeah. So, you know, lockdown has been brilliant for me. <laughs> I wrote a book about lockdown during lockdown, but then I didn't have anything else to do. Um, I said, Cormac McCarthy said, books come out of books. That's literature's dirty secret. So for me, the seminal book is Italo Calvino's Italian Folk Tales, one of the greatest books of the 20th century. Italo Calvino is a, a modernist novelist, but he took 200 of the Italian uh, South of Italy fairy tales, which are not like Perrault and Grimm and Anderson. They're completely different. And he found a way of writing them. He, he used a great deal of dialogue. He used very little summary narrative, very little. Once upon a time, there was a princess who lived in a castle with her two brothers and they played and he, he did away with all of that. He found ways of dramatizing the scenes. He just found a way, Calvino found a way to, to, um, if you like, cinematize, make like cinema, this ancient material. And when I went to Aesop and when I went to Boccaccio, I, 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 that's exactly what I did. I just did what I had seen Calvino had done. And um, I would like to think it works. You wrote a novel during lockdown as well, did you? I finished a novel. I didn't write the entire, but I did do quite a lot of work on it. Yes. And that's out um, next year. Yeah. I mean, essentially, uh, uh, I was working in Dublin and that stopped on the 17th of March. Mm -hmm. And since the 17th of March, I have been, um, I've only spent, I've been in Sligo for three nights and I've been to three restaurants. So that's six outings <laughs> in 10 months. And the rest of the time I have been here. You've been writing. You've also been lecturing because you do lecture in writing as well. Yes. So how yeah. have you found that? You're doing it over over Zoom, obviously, with your classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how do I find it? Well, thank goodness that Zoom is available because mm -hmm. if it wasn't, um, your life would be very difficult. I mean, when... Um, the lockdown started, um, I continued my teaching, so to speak, by correspondence. So it was all by email or writing and correcting people's work and sending it back to them. Zoom has really started in earnest this September. It's fine. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, the, the, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's, this is fine. This is particularly fine because it's just two of us. Mm -hmm. When you have, you know, three or four or five faces, yes. When you have more than that, it becomes um, you have to be a you have to be a kind of you have to act like an impresario. You have to be watching and making certain that you don't miss somebody's raised hand or an expression. And you have to 
actually make the effort to bring them into the conversation. Whereas when you talk, as you were saying to me earlier, you interrupt. So Zoom has ended interruption. I mean, when you're in the classroom, people just say, ah, a wave, you know, but that's 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 not possible. And, and have you found that lockdown has impacted on their writing ability and creativity? Are you seeing any difference sort of between the class this year and the class last year? I think no. I, in terms of the, of of the, the ability to use language in an interesting way and, and to the tell, quality, the quality of work. Yeah. No, that hasn't altered one jot. Okay, interesting. Um, because people, you know, the the the, the, the psyche um, and its um, capacity to produce interesting content was formed pre-COVID. Now, if we had to live like this for another 30 years, then we would begin to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that I do think is, um, I think people's posture has been changed because everybody is on their mobile phone walking along the street and they've got a sort of hump and their thumbs are out like this. And everybody has now got this um, exaggerated um, mobile phone thumb writing spine. I think though writers probably never sit properly in their chairs anyway, do they? So they maybe no. were susceptible to that previously anyway, you know. No. Um, I just wanted to to talk about uh, your mother actually just for a second, Edna O'Brien. I'm just intrigued actually. Does she read any of your work before it's published? Before it's published, no. No. So you just, no. she gets it when everybody else gets it? Yes, Absolutely. Um, no, I think that's that. That is, you, you know, uh, at sixty-six, you have to stand on your own two feet. <laughs> I know. Um, you know, I, I I find it incredible that I would even sixty-six. I I thought I was thirty for a long time. I've 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 believed I was thirty. But we all do. We all do. Yeah, yeah. But I know I'm sixty-six. It's a fact. Now, here's another thing about Zoom. You see yourself. Yes, very much so. And what you see is, if you're me how old you are. Mm -hmm. And are you fearful of that ageing process? There is absolutely nothing to recommend about the ageing process. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing, nothing we can do about it either. Uh, no, <laughs> no. I mean, you can, you could, you know, have chirogenics. You could, you could, you could, you know, have yourself put into cold nitrogen or something and stored mm -hmm. for a thousand years in, in a Nevada desert. Uh, no, there's nothing we can do. I mean, you know, don't overdrink, don't smoke. Don't take too many drugs. Actually, no, don't take any drugs. What am I saying? <laughs> Nancy Reagan said, just say no. Just and um, no. Uh, fill yourself up with good things. And do you think, though, has your writing gotten better over that, as you said, that long period of time you've been writing for, for many, many decades at this stage? Do you feel it's gotten better? Mm. I think it's got quicker. Mm -hmm. What I mean by quicker is... I don't mean the generation has become faster, although that may be that may be the case. The amount of time or the numbers of the, the, the words I expend getting from A to B and then from B to C has um, diminished. Mm -hmm. I'm able to get there more quickly. Um, I'm able to be more compressed. I am able to be more economical. And that comes from experience. But even though I would like to think of myself as an economical writer, um, I, 
I think people who work in the theatre are even more ruthless about and even, yeah, about cutting and compressing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I worked with Roger Doyle and um, he took the text and I'd written what I thought was uh, really like paired to the bone and he was able to take things out and it was, which I had not been able to see, which it did not need, but because his understanding of theatre was more developed than mine, he was able to remove them and it worked just as well, if not better. Well, Carlo Gabler, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books today. And you'll find Tales We Tell Ourselves online or at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at InsideBooksIRE. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Brida Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production 